0: So if you've got your Bibles, let's grab them out. We're going to go to the book of Hebrews. I mentioned last week that we're going to spend some time intentionally in this wonderful portion of Scripture. And as you turn there, I know we started, as we often do, reading books of the Bible backwards, trying to grab some of the key aspects and elements that the author is focusing on. But we're going back to Hebrews 1, verse 1. Before we do anything else, let's pray. Father, I just thank you for the joy of knowing you, the radical reality that you paid such a great price to draw us in to your embrace, save, rescue, to redeem the people for your own possession. I thank you that it's your desire and delight even more than ours to be in the midst of your people. And so we thank you, Lord, as we've proclaimed and sung, you're the the way maker, you're the miracle worker, closer than a brother, closer than a friend, and Father, we just pray that you would still the noise and distraction. Help us this morning as we turn to your scriptures to hear your heartbeat. Let him who has ears hear. Jesus, that's your phrase, not mine, what the Spirit is saying. So give us listening ears, and through the power of your Spirit, speak to our hearts, Thank you for your word. Thank you that it never returns void. May it go deep, planted in our hearts for the glory of your name, King Jesus, we pray. Do what you desire to do. We're expecting big things in your name this year, in us and through us. We pray that in faith in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews 1. I I mentioned last week for those who were there, very quick review. There's two kind of Key exhortations or encouragements that you, you cannot miss as you go through here because they are repeated. And we looked at one of those last week. And it's this exhortation to remain steadfast, to, to press on, to endure. And, and so there's this continual exhortation. Keep going. Hold fast the confession of your faith. Stand steady on the solid rock of your salvation. It's the first emphasis. And the second one, as well as that commitment to the Lord, it's this ongoing commitment to the people of God to not neglect, as it says in Hebrews 10, the gathering together, be intentional. And you're gathering together and you're loving one another, considering how, or literally provoking how, we can continue to stir one another up to love and to good works. We looked at both of those. The the privilege it is to love God and to love one another. And the good works that he has, Ephesians says, prepared in advance. We're here for a purpose, his image bearers, to display the glorious grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, to shine his light in the midst of an ever-darkening world. It's a big call, but that's his desire and his delight to work in the midst of his people. And the the author of the book of Hebrews, he He leads into these exhortations to remain steadfast and committed to the Lord and one another by presenting this picture, as we said, of a big Jesus. He continually emphasizes this is who Jesus is. This is what he's done. This is what he's accomplished. And this is therefore what becomes your foundation. Thank you. Brother Rattler. So let's see how he begins this journey here. We're just going to read a few verses and set some things up this morning. We will, I promise, pick up pace as we go through this incredible book. The letter to Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 1. says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, "...whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world, He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angel as the name He has inherited, is more excellent than theirs. You know, pause there this morning and continue. We'll find there's over a dozen different titles and proclamations of who Jesus is. Unsurprising, as we've already kind of laid the groundwork, that that here is the emphasis. This is Jesus. Behold Jesus. But I want to focus just on these opening couple of verses this morning. And I love the way that... uh, the author, he begins, he says, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God s- spoke to our fathers. This is the first emphasis that he's making here. He's saying, recognize this. we am going to talk about Jesus, who he was, and what he's done and accomplished. But recognize this. There is a God who speaks. And we could camp there. There, there is a God who, from the beginning of the story of human history, all the way through, And we believe continues on now. In fact, Jesus proclaims, this is how you know that you're following me, that you're my sheep, is that you hear my voice. There is a God who speaks. There's a God who makes clear his will and purpose. And in fact, as Hebrews begins and proclaims, it says there is this ongoing progressive speaking at many times and in many ways. There wasn't just kind of one download at the beginning, and that'll do you for all human history. He, it, he's a God who speaks and continues to speak. and In fact, if we did a survey throughout the Scriptures, we'd find that there is, uh, most commentators would say, at least a third, somewhat, some would say, closer to 40% of the Scripture that is simply recording the speakings, if you like, the utterings of God. The dreams, the visions, the occurrences, the accounts of a God who continues. That's his desire, is to be a God whose will is known. It's not a mystery. It's not unclear. It's not for us to kind of figure out. It's a God who from the beginning and right the way through to the end, a God who speaks. He continues to unveil this reality of who he is. We see His creative power his moral righteousness his judgments his loving covenants through events prophets individuals history there's this progressive revelation of a god who speaks and so that's the backdrop hebrews is saying recognize this god speaks but there is one proclamation of his voice of his utterance of his will of who he is that outshines and outlasts and is above them all. And so he goes on and he says, but in these days, he is now spoken to us by his son. And he goes on just to give us a snapshot of who he is. He's the very image of God. He's not just an angel or creator, but he is God. Jesus is God in human flesh. And we could camp there for all eternity marvelling at that wonder. So there's many means of communication, but these were just the precursors. Jesus is the fulfillment. See, they preach expectantly of this coming Messiah, of a God who would make a way of his kingdom that he would establish. Whereas Jesus came to proclaim, establish, and demonstrate that very kingdom. Not only is Jesus the fulfillment of these prophetic utterances, but he's the very foundation of truth that these prophecies are built upon. And therefore, that's what the the writer of Hebrews is saying. God speaks many ways, many times. But Jesus is the lens through which all of that should be and must be viewed. And so Hebrews, we're going to find, it's this wonderful proclamation of Christiology or this theology around who Christ is. One scholar put it this way. He says, as we view the history of the church, we see clearly that a lessened Christiology or an understanding of Christ, a focus, and emphasis upon Christ, his personal, what he's accomplished, directly corresponds to a lessened church. When, on the other hand, the church rediscovers the magnificent Christ, Is overwhelmed by his godly person, his sacrificial atonement. The church comes alive and sweeps great segments of history before it. It goes on, it says, Let the high view of Christ again lift up the church to its apostolic power. Preaching will be transformed, individuals will be changed by his redeeming grace, societies will be delivered from oppressors, no longer able to contain the liberated disciples, and the body of Christ will be alive with his compassion and ministering love. That's the goal, that is the intention, that is the desire to hold up a magnificent and a mighty view of the risen Lord Jesus Christ that would be caught up in wonder and ushered afresh to hold fast and stirred on to good works. So the point is simply this, Christ is not peripheral in our theology. It's interesting, isn't it? We'll talk more about this next week or the week after, next time. It's interesting how little often the name of Christ is mentioned in our church services. At times it's almost like he's there, but he's just kind of the, he's, he's the backdrop. He's the, maybe the means in and we've moved past or moved on from that. I want to suggest to us that Christ is not peripheral in our theology. In our worship, He is central. He who was and is and is to come, what He has done. And there's something that is of great importance and great power for us to remember. So that's, that's the journey, if you like, of this year, is to go through this book and try and grab these pictures of Christ that will arrest our hearts and launch us into an even more passionate pursuit of Him. Before we launch into those, I want to pause there for this reason, and I did mention I want to talk a little bit about this this whole notion of a, a slightly different way or emphasis of bringing something new and fresh into the way that we consider doing church. And there's wonderful pictures of, of Christ that even here we've we've outlined, and that we will discover: Christ as King, Christ as Saviour, Christ as Lord. But here's the first picture. And it's so simple and yet it's so profound and for me personally has been something that's really challenged and impacted me over probably the last 12 months. I talked a little bit about it last week. But it's this picture here. He's saying, God has spoken and how has he done it? He hasn't just sent an angel. He hasn't just given some sort of divine download God has spoken, and how did he speak? He came himself. As we proclaim in the service, and it wasn't planned, that he is the God who dwells amongst his people, that he is our Emmanuel, that he's tabernacled amongst us, that he's made his dwelling place with us. It's not just intellectual. It's this experiential knowledge and reality of the incarnated Christ of God. He stepped down amongst us. And you see, I've discovered, I've been walking with the Lord for decades now, not just years. And yet I've discovered there is always more as you glimpse at the beauty and majesty of Jesus. To be overcome by, to be undone by. And there's been a sense for me of just being undone by this reality, this fellowship of God, this relational heart. He didn't just send a message. He came as the message, the centrality for Christ, even as he ministered three years' worth of ministry. I mean, he, he had a life just growing up in a family, just doing human things. And even in his ministry, three years, the greatest, the most significant most important mission in all humanity. Put in motion before the foundation of the world. And yet, so much of that three years he spent around the table fellowshipping with people. One theologian said this they said, It's hard to find an account in the gospel that's not somehow centered around a meal. Jesus either going to a meal or coming from a meal or in the midst of a meal. In fact, one of the criticisms of the Pharisees, of Jesus, they said, you call yourself the, the Messiah and yet all you do is you wine and dine. you just found at the houses of sinners. you just like, really? Is, is that the heart of the Messiah, to come and to just be with people and fellowship in that way? See, there were was, was so many moments about who Jesus was and what he did. And remember, that's, that's the focus. God is speaking through him, not just his words, but the way he lived. And I want, I want to just encourage our hearts in that place, the, the centrality to Christ of the table. Think of it from this way. we This morning, we celebrated communion, and it's something that we do as a priority as a church. Communion, the Lord's Supper, Eucharist, etc., different names throughout church history over the years. I mean, there's a lot of churches, segments of the church that have kind of left it to the wayside. But we do that intentionally, you know, of great prominence is the fact that Jesus himself, he said, as often as you gather, do this, take take the bread, drink from the cup. And so it's a wonderful thing to do to proclaim this truth. And it is, in many ways, we could say it is the greatest proclamation Of theological truth, arguably, in Jesus' ministry. This fundamental, foundational truth my body's been given, my blood has been shed, there is a new covenant. This truth is vital. And yet, here's the point that somehow, that sometimes we miss. You know, that truth was given, it wasn't given and found in the midst of a formal liturgy wasn't given in the midst of a service. He didn't gather around and say, this is how it works. We do this, this, this. Then we have a little moment here. And you know where it was found? It was found in the midst of a meal. It was Jesus gathering around, fellowshipping with the people that he'd spent three years with, lived, breathed, loved, healed. They'd seen incredible things. And he sits down. He's like, guys, let's have a meal. And out of that place comes this incredible proclamation of theological truth. And so I think we have this tendency, as I said, we've distilled communion into the proclamation of truth, and that's good. Praise God that there's still churches and segments of the church that have a priority to remember communion, because it's so important. It is. Breaking bread together, remembering that moment where Jesus said, this this is the heart of the mission. I've come to die on a cross in your place for your sin. I've come to offer you mercy and forgiveness. But not only is that distillation of truth important, so is the context. The context of where that was found around the table in the midst of a meal. It wasn't just a proclamation of God's truth, it was a proclamation of God's passionate heart. A God whose love stretched out from before time began, flowing through human history with this growing tide into this ultimate expression of love. A proclamation made it a meal, a gift of himself with these people that he'd come before in flesh. He taught them, he'd healed them, he loved them, he died for them. And with eyes full of love, he breaks bread in the midst of this moment, catching them up into this sweeping tsunami of his grace. This redemption of a people of his own possession, his image bearers reflecting for eternity the matchless majesty of a God who's so loved. They didn't just come to say, well, here it is, do this right. He came and invited them to a table. He invited them not just to the forgiveness of sin, but to fellowship, that through his gift of grace, we might know him and discover the very reason For which we were created. See, N.T. Wright, he's one of my favorite uh, theologians and scholars. A little bit controversial in some circles. I like him. But he always has this emphasis. He says, you know, the gospel is not about somehow getting us to God. Sometimes we, we limit it, we reduce it. It's somehow this way that we can climb a ladder and achieve something and somehow take a step closer towards God. He said, the gospel is not about us getting to God. The center of it is God getting to us. That's why he came and he died. That he would tabernacle amongst us. And there's this moment in Romans 21 proclaiming. It says, finally, the dwelling place of God is with man. He would dwell with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more mourning. This moment of the heart of God foreshadowed by the tabernacle and the temple. The renewal of all creation is, is we become the temple and he dwells with us. This centra- central heart of the purpose of God is that he would dwell with us. Not just here would, you know, kind of cover your sins and try and get you over the line and bring you into heaven. But this radical heart of God who so loved us. And we see that expressed so clearly, not just in Christ's words, but as he gathered and as he loved people. And so, you know, I've grown up in the church certainly for the last few decades and it's interesting how often you go to um, church planning seminars, you kind of chat with pastors, what, what do we need to do to have a, uh, an effective church to accomplish the mission? And I can say, honestly, and probably at times been caught up and drawn into some of these things, you, got, you get a group of pastors together and say, well, you've, you've got to find some good musicians, you've got to have a nice building. You've got to have engaging sermons, not too challenging. Avoid those prickly verses, just something that feels good, that kind of keeps people happy. It's a bit motivational. Perhaps in different segments of the church, it's like, well, no, this is what we need to do. We need to uh, have the right prayers. We need to have the, if we can agree on this formal liturgy, if we can find things that have the weight of history behind them and pray those prayers, then we'll really see impact for the kingdom and the glory of God. And I want to say, not all of those things are bad. Not all those things are bad at all. And in fact, I've, I've also, in my time in ministry, I've seen all these different movements and emphases come and go from, well, we've got to have a big mega church, or we've got to be you know, gathered in small groups and homes. I've seen many of them uh, succeed in some ways, and many of them fail. Uh, where I land is, I've yet to find any perfect model for church, Because as long as there's people in there, you're never going to find the perfect model. If you could just take the people out, then there'd be plenty of good options. But I do think there are these essential um, elements of who we are as God's people. Essential. I believe, and and I I want to make sure this is crystal clear, I believe that this is essential. What we're doing here, gathering corporately, just encountering the, the presence of God, God in our midst... Offering a prayer, praying for one another, taking the communion. This is, this is wonderful. I love this. I love this. But I want to encourage us that it, it's not, we've got to move from this. It's this and. And something that I believe that we have um, de-emphasized, we've maybe not seen as important or as significant. Maybe it's a bit more uncomfortable. But it's this, this centrality as we see the life of Christ. He was preaching, he was doing miracles, he was all, all that wonderful stuff. But then he was gathering around the table, doing love, bringing together people who wanted nothing to do with one another. And washing their feet and serving them and saying, love one another because it's by this that the world will know that you're my disciples. You know, not once does he say, "You know, by by the way that your your worship is cutting edge, it's by the singing of the right songs, it's by the praying of the right." Pr- if you can just figure out that liturgy, you've been at it for two thousand years. But if you can just get it right, then the world will know that you're my disciples. All that's good and important, but the one challenge he gives us is he says, "No, there's something about this expression, something about gathering together." that reveals the heart of this God who came. He didn't just speak from a distance. He could have. He could have just yelled from heaven, guys, get your act together. Here's here's what, you know, he came himself. He came himself. He tabernacled amongst us. He sat around the table. He broke bread. And there's something in that picture of fellowship. Fellowship. We did a couple of years back, we, we looked at the book of Acts. Tell you what, I cannot be both challenged and encouraged and confronted as I read the book of Acts. And there's a, a lot of wonderful things and emphases, but there is this commitment that we read about. They were so committed to one another, and I'm not, again, not suggesting we need to get back to this, so committed to one another and to the Lord. That those who had money, they just came and said, here it is, take it all. Like, I'm putting everything I have on the table in pursuit of God, seeing his kingdom come, seeing the people around. I said nobody was in need because people just gave. They loved one another sacrificially. Again, I'm not saying that's the model and we've got to get back there, but I'm saying there is some essentials. If we want to see... The book of Acts, and I believe that that's God's desire, his power moving through the lives of his people. Seeing signs and wonders, seeing people transformed, salvation, deliverance. I believe we'll see it before the Lord returns. I do, genuinely. But I do think there's something in this picture that we've got to grab a hold of. It's not the only thing, but there is this coming back and seeing the need, the centrality of... Of the table of a people doing life together seeing the importance of the table central to Jesus central to his mission God dwelling in the midst of his people let me just mention this uh, one other tangent and then we'll kind of bring it back together and I know I, I talked about this and mentioned this last year but it's, it's, it's interesting as I have kind of been on this journey with the Lord of, of seeing this reality of a communal God and of seeing in my own life and the world around me that, that there is a need and perhaps the greatest need in the world, certainly the Western world that we live in, is this longing for true connection and fellowship. I mentioned last year, and I'll, I'll just refer to it very quickly again, there was a... Uh, a New York Times bestseller that came out. And the two authors were the directors of the Harvard study of adult development. The book was called The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness. And the very brief headline there is these Harvard professors got together and did a study for 85 years. It's the longest study into human development ever done in human history, certainly modern human history. You could argue in all human history. And they were, they were searching for, for one reality. And that is, what is it that is the driver of human happiness? What is it that makes people happy? And I think they thought that there might be a list, there might be a whole series of things. And you know, there, was, there was a lot of little things, but there was one thing that stood out. 85 years, thousands of people in this particular study, all this research, the longest in-depth, longitudinal study on human life ever done. You know what it concluded? There was one thing and one thing alone that came through this study that is the essential ingredient to human happiness, to making life tick. It was good relationships. That was it. It was good relationships. It was people who had others around that they loved and in turn were loved by. And so The funny thing is, you know, we... we particularly in the West, we drive ourselves on all of these things like career achievement, money, exercise, healthy diet, and they're all good in and of themselves. But the one thing that this study, that Scripture proclaims that we need, that we were made for from a Christian point of view, Ephesians 1, it says that, that he made us in his purpose, he, in love he predestined us to adoption. That's, that's what we were made for to be loved and to be an expression of his love all these things we chase after and yet there's only one there's only one that scripture proclaims that this study points to that is essential for human happiness and it's effective and good and long-lasting relationships is it any wonder then in the world we live where there's so much connectivity connectiveness, Facebook friends, and yet there's so little connection. It's like thirsting and then drinking soft drink, isn't it? And it gives you this almost this sense of I'm quenching my thirst, but then it just leaves you thirstier for the real thing. See, I, I believe there is a call here, not just for us, this is the point, to grab a hold of this so that we might do church better. That's a part of it. But I believe there is a a real reality that there there is and there would be no greater proclamation. It would speak more loudly than any sermon that I could ever preach. And I'm going to keep preaching. I'm not saying I'm not going to preach. Than any big uh, evangelical crusade we could run, although they're good and I'm all for that too. But if we could be a people that followed the example of Christ and knew what it was to truly want, love one another. Not just little, little clicks and little circles, but different people, different walks of life coming together with that heart. This is this is church. And this is not just for me. This is a, a proclamation of the love with, with which God has loved me. This is a witness to the world demonstrating who he is. I believe that the world would stop and look with wonder and with attention. So here comes Christ. I'm going to look at all these pictures, but here's the first picture for us. Stepping in to time to bring us back, to redeem and restore us to relationship. Centrality of the table. Amongst all the other images of Christ, Christ the healer, Christ the Saviour, Christ the King, Christ as Lord. I want to encourage us with that picture this morning of Christ around a table, of that God who is very much within our midst. He literally came into the midst of his people. There is that picture, I believe, that would shape us. So very quickly, just to finish this, where's Ali? Is she around to come and play? See, all of this is, is forming part of this motivation for starting these church hubs, for us somehow beginning to see this glorious call for church to be this. Yes, wonderful. But to be more than this, to be gathering together, to glorify God, to hear his word proclaimed, but then gathering together around the table to love one another and see that. It's both and. This, this is church. So intentionally so. It's, it's on a Sunday so that we can gather together corporately Then we can go into our little hubs, we can share a meal, we can pray for one another, we can strengthen one another, we can encourage one another. That's, that's the desire in the heart. You might ask, well, is, is this going to solve all the problems? Is this the answer? And I'd say, no, not even close. This is simply all we're trying to do here. You you, you cannot program your way into a relationship. But this is simply providing some scaffolding. That's all it is. We want to see something built in our midst. And this is one avenue to provide a bit of scaffolding, to help that happen and be established. As has been the last couple of weeks, and I don't mind focusing on this every Sunday. That's what the Lord would have until we kind of can grab this heart. This is of significance for us personally. This is of significance for us as a church this year. It's what we're seeking. It's what we're praying into. It's what we're longing for. So I pray for us. Would you stand with me this morning? mentioned before there's ways and means that you can join the the hubs the family hubs will start up in feb in geographical regions i don't mind if it's only a few or if there's many we're just going to step out in that way i'd love for you not to miss out love for you to be part of it part of what god's doing in that regard would you close your eyes sort of pray for us as we bring this time this morning to a close and Father, we, we thank you. We thank you that you so loved us. So loved us. You didn't just send a message, send an angel, write it in the skies that you came, that you sent your son, that Jesus put on flesh the king of glory tabernacling amongst his people lord thank you that you came and you revealed the kingdom you called people to repentance you proclaimed who you are who you were by feeding the 5000 by walking on water by speaking to the storms you proclaimed most definitively and definitely who you are As you rose on the third day as the stone was rolled away as the tomb was empty forever proclaiming and declaring to humanity that you are who you said you are but this morning in particular god i thank you as we've already already prayed already sung i thank you that you are the god who is with us, that you are the God who is for us, that you are the God who invites us to the table of fellowship, not just an invitation to have your sins washed away, but that through your death and resurrection, you'd invite us into your embrace sons and the daughters of the living God. Well, I pray this morning that that picture would burn into our hearts, the God around the table. And that as we see you in that way, that that too would compel us to heed your words, to love one another, to love you first and to love our neighbours. I pray Lord this would be a this would be a year. As Hebrews ten twenty-four talks about being stirred of being provoked. We can certainly stir and provoke one another, but this morning, Lord, I, I pray that your spirit would provoke our hearts to pursue you in a deeper way. To know you and to live out the calling that you have upon our lives. Thank you for the good works prepared in advance. I want to see your kingdom come. I want to see your will be done. I want to see people come to know you. I want to see the glory of your name made great in our lives, in the city, the nations of the world. What a privilege. That you'd love us and that you'd call us to make you known. What a privilege. So come and do a work in our hearts. I pray this morning in that regard. Amen.